Hey, everybody. Here's a conversation with Bruce Smolinoff, a.k.a. Email Kolar, the first person to get whacked on The Sopranos, Christopher's first kill, and someone who, as small a part as he says he played in the show, had a massive impact on Christopher's character development, arc, and world-building. He appeared in both the pilot and eighth episode, The Legend of Tennessee Moltisanti. Bruce currently lives in New York City and is a director at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. He also writes and produces his own projects. Here's our conversation. So let's go back to the beginning. Talk about the day you got the call about The Sopranos. Who called you and what happened next? Yeah, so I had an agent, guy by the name of Mark Upchurch, really wonderful guy, and he would send me on these little auditions, you know, these small supporting parts. And uh, it was kind of unusual because unlike most auditions, he said, hey, can you get down to, uh, I think it was like 19th Street or 18th Street in Chelsea. He's like, can you get to this place in like two hours? Uh, I got an audition for you. You know, you're going to meet the producer. You're going to meet the director. It's, it's a guy who's Eastern European for the show called The Sopranos. And, you know, he, he said, can you get down there? I said, sure. Yeah. Yeah. No problem. And what was similar was about most auditions is you, you never know where you're going. You know, they're all so random and different. But, you know, usually you, you have like a week in advance to prepare. Uh, I, I didn't have a week in advance. I had a couple of hours. So I, I went down to this place. They usually hold these auditions in some small room in a warehouse somewhere, you know, some film type of warehouse. I got there and somebody comes out of a room and says, oh, you know, thank you for coming. All right, come on in. And I think I had you know, like a brief one or two pages of what the scene was going to be. And, you know, it's a short scene, so it wasn't that difficult. But uh, what was unique about it was that David Chase met with me and basically he just talked to me. He didn't have me read anything. Uh, what I really liked about it and what you'll see on occasion with some directors is they'll just want to have a conversation, like just interview you and um, to kind of get you to forget that you're actually auditioning or interviewing for something. And and he did that, you know, not many directors do that, but he did do that. And looking back, I, I realized it. I, at the time I didn't, you know, I just thought, why is this guy asking me, you know, what was it like growing up? And he was asking me these, you know, odd questions like, you know, what'd you do when you were a kid? And, um, you know, he was like, can you, you know, he, he just wanted to like, I guess what he was trying to do was get to know me in like five minutes because it's so hard, you know, when you work with actors, when you're making a film, you want it to feel like you all know each other for years, that it's very intimate and, you know, you would have a conversation like you're having with your best friend. And so, so he did that. We didn't really read the script or anything. He was just asking me questions about myself, like, you know, what do you like to do? 
what are your friends like? You know, he, I guess he was trying to see what kind of a kid I was or what kind of a guy I was. You know, looking back now, I thought, oh, he, he's a really good director because I, I forgot that I was actually acting. You mentioned it all happened kind of quickly, but did you have a yeah. sense of what kind of a project this was? Did you have a sense of HBO right. or anything like that? I had no idea who he was. He was, he was just, he was just some guy who was like, you know, some guy who's making a movie or some guy who's making a low-budget independent film, but, a re- you know, and a really nice guy, just like, hey, man, how you doing? Come on in, sit down. I mean, that was my experience with him. I imagine, you know, when they got to casting my part, I would be categorized as one of the smaller parts, so they right. probably had to work, you know, a lot of times these situations, they have to work really fast, and so, you know, you kind of got to force these comfortable situations and he he was really good at that he made me feel like i was just talking to some guy in a candy store you know that's amazing so you you meet with him you go for this audition and then how much time elapses before you hear back you know i could be a little bit off on this but it felt like you know we we have this conversation and then i left and the way i remember it was my the agent called me up and said hey you you got the part literally like an hour later wow to me and i'm sure like a lot of people who maybe the more of the supporting roles it just you know i hadn't i didn't see the whole script i didn't know whether or not it was going to be great or not it was really just another job with a weird name you know i remember everybody i would my mother would always always ask me i'd call her up she'd say what'd you do today (laughs) did you go to an audition and i just say yeah mom i went for an audition today and what what was it and i remember telling her that uh, something called the sopranos so what you don't (laughs) sing sopranos but you know that's what everybody would say they say such a weird name the soprano yeah you know everybody thought it was about a group of opera singers. One of the things that we study with this podcast and just fans that consider themselves wannabe historians of the show, so much of the show Mm -hmm. is about ambiguity and uncertainty, and the title is no different. Yeah. Did you audition for any other parts on The Sopranos, or was it just Emil Kolar? Yeah, it was just Emil Kolar. It was was only that part. I'm guessing that I came in um, probably after all of the bigger roles were cast. Because also, when the agent called me and said, hey, you know, you got the part, he also said, can you go do a table read of this? I feel like it was the, the same day, like later on that night. He said, can you, you know, I need, I need you to go back there at like eight o'clock tonight. Everyone's going to be there. And they're going to, it was either the same day or the next night. It was really fast. Any idea or sense of why this one in particular was so fast, why everything was moving so quickly? You know, I didn't get an idea, but it, it seemed it seemed run a little bit more like the way, say, an independent film uh, is run sometimes, you know, um, versus like the big Hollywood or the studio or say, a, you know, a, a TV series that's that's on the air. So it seemed to be run, the show seemed to be run a little bit more like an independent film, like something that was just like happening really quick. Let's get who we can get. Let's put this thing together, you know, limited resources. Um, gotcha. You know, we I, at the time I was told this is just a pilot. You know, nobody knows anything. It wasn't set up. So, which, you know, I think that can work to uh, to a project's advantage yeah, because yeah. Um, 
sometimes too much money, too much resources slows things down. It's funny you just said nobody knows anything. We're sitting down to record episode 11 tonight for nobody knows anything. And um, mm -hmm. it's just a great line. It's just, and it's so true about the, even about the show itself, the enigma that was the ending. So you go for this table read. Did you have a sense or did you know about your character and the fate in advance? Did you know it was going to happen uh, and that it was going to happen in the pilot? I knew that in the pilot, you know, I was going to get whacked. I was going to be the first uh, whacking. Right. Of, uh, or, you know, really, or the only whacking. I, I mean, I, no one, I mean, I didn't think this show was going to go on. Yeah. Not for any reason. I, it was just the pilot. I thought it would, you know, we'd make this thing and that would be the end of it. So, I, you know, there was no talk you know, about the, the follow-up coming back in the dream sequence. Yeah. And the, that, that was a year and a half, two years later till I heard from them. But in terms of the reading, the table read, you know, when you go to these things, you know, when you get a part, you know, you get excited and go, oh, I wonder who I'm acting with. The only one that, like, was of, of the caliber, like, where people got excited and knew was Lorraine Bracco. Not to take away anything from the other actors because they all, you know, had, very um, great careers and did great work. I mean, even James Gambolsini had a whole list of acting gigs that he did that were really great. But really, at the read, I, I remember being like excited because Lorraine Bracco walked in the room. Everybody else who was sitting there was just like me. Like I didn't know who they were. I mean, you know, they were just another actor. So. In fact, like everybody, when they walked into, everyone walked into the room around, you know, it's like you're going to like a little cocktail, you know, like a little party, like the actors, oh, we're going to meet, we're going to read, a, a meet and greet, you know, and have, have some snacks and sodas, you know, and uh, everybody sat down and it, it, it was like, a, you know, like a, a bunch of characters just sitting, you know, when, when the... Uh, other monster guys, Vinny Pastor and all the all those guys were just kind of sitting around. Mm -hmm. It was just it was kind of a goof. It's like okay, we're going to all sit around and and do a reading now. And uh, again, I remember telling my, my mom, you know, I would always I would always want to like legitimize what I was doing with my days or uh, give it credence. And I so when I told her, you know, I went to do this thing, uh, she's like, "Who was there?" You know, and I said, "Lorraine Bracco." That was the only person who mattered. You know. How was shooting the pilot different than shooting Legend of Tennessee Moltisanti in terms of vibe, activity, sense of weight? I'm trying to get like, uh, in the beginning, it sounds like the pilot, there wasn't really this gravity to the show. Did, yeah. did the show, was it different for the second episode? Um, maybe a little bit. I mean, I, for me, the vibe, the spirit of the set, the camaraderie, sort of the, um, yeah, just sort of the environment that's, you know, that's created. Uh, was still pretty much the same, uh, but I will say there was maybe a little bit more intensity in terms of like, oh, this is this is real now. It's it's being backed by HBO. This is on schedule. This is there's a more at stake. It felt yeah, it definitely felt like there was more at stake. Maybe that kind of pressure, you know. I guess sometimes you kind of know or could feel like when money is being spent and there's a lot of resources that the stakes are a bit higher. But in terms of like just sort of the vibe, you know, of the people working on set or how they treated you, was still for me again very much the same. I mean, you know, mind you, I, I'm just sort of a, a smaller, you know, supporting role, so I, I wasn't there for everything. But but I will say I. 
I, I did get the sense that David Chase created, uh, you know, a family uh, in intimacy, which is which is always a good thing, you know, which is always important. But I, I enjoyed it. Everybody was really nice and, and gracious. And um, I think, you know, creatively, from the creative standpoint, that stuff is really important to sort of nurture and engender creativity and keeping people at ease. So uh, to me, it felt like it was very much the same, uh, but maybe just a, a higher level of excitement, like, oh, this is going to be on HBO. So this is this is actually now a really cool thing. It went from being a thing that nobody really necessarily cared or knew it was a, another gig to being like, oh, this this might actually be really cool, you know. Can you share any personal stories from the pilot or from Tennessee? Well, yeah, there's a couple of things. Well, I, first and foremost, like I, I had mentioned, you know, David Chase, just sort of the spirit and and the way that he spoke to actors or to any of the other creatives on the set, I, I thought was really cool. I always remembered that and I, you know, try to keep that, you know, if, if I'm doing something creative too. Um, in terms of, let me see, what else? Uh, I, one kind of funny thing is that, you know, that line that I have when I come back in the dream where I said, did you ever have our sausages? And that line is like, it's repeating in his dream. It's haunting him. I never really got that. Like to me, it was just another line. Like, but you know, years later, you know, friends or fans of the show, when I would, I could be at a barbecue or at a family event or something. And people would always say that to me. And they would joke, you know, like a guy would come up to me and be like, Hey, you ever have my sausage? You want to try my sausage? And, and I thought, I thought, gee, that's a brilliant line. That's funny. That's a joke. But I didn't know it. But I guess the joke worked. Like everybody got it. But I was like, oh, had I known, like maybe I could have put a little, little accent on that line. You know, just like, you know. They, what does the line mean to you now? How do you interpret it now? Well, now I interpret it like I, like when I come back to haunt him, I could have really given it to him, like because I say to him. You will have my sausage. Yeah. You know, there's that line, like, like he goes, why, why are you scaring me? Right. Why, why are you ha- haunting me? And I said, you know, I tell him, um, you know, I say to him, you know, you, you killed me. And, and then he's, he's freaking out and I'm going, you will have my sausage, man. Like it, it's, it's like the ultimate humiliation. Like I'm going to give you my sausage. I'm going to like stick it to you, buddy. At the time, I didn't know like that's what I was saying, you know. Which is one of my later questions for you about this, just like being in the moment with this stuff. You don't necessarily have a time to process what's going on. There is a couple of Easter eggs that everybody that follows the show and loves the show, we ourselves have discussed it in these two particular scenes. You know, you mentioned that your role was small, but I'm going to argue that the character you played was very significant to Christopher's development. You know, there's this this whole notion of his arc. There's this whole notion of who he is and him wanting to get on the map and wanting to be a made guy. Your character being his first kill, it's the impetus that gets Christopher through season one. So that's why it's kind of exciting to talk to you because he's a very important character for me and I'm just trying to analyze the show. I'm going to admit it's borderline OCD, but it's, uh, uh, we, you mentioned David Chase many times and I and I truly admire the seriousness with which I think he put this project together. And I, I really believe yeah. that everything he did was very intentional. And in your scene in particular, there's this number 34, Christopher serving the number 34. And then later in another scene, he he is number 34 at a bakery. Do you have any thoughts on the number 34? Does it Did it mean anything to you then? Does it mean anything to you now? I, I mean, 
quite honestly, um, no, I was not aware or privy to any any kind of story or backstory okay. or, or subliminal meaning of 34. But I mean, if it's there, I mean, if it's the kind of thing that comes up two, three times, I mean, it's in the I, frame I, three times. Then, then I would say it has to be intentional. I mean, every, every you know, a writer, director, everything they do is, you know, that is there for a reason. So that, I mean, it sounds cool. I, I would love to know uh, what's behind that as well. I mean, do you have any, you know, research or feedback on that? We were trying to figure out the age. Maybe it was the age of Michael Imperioli at that time. I think he was a little bit older, but I'm not sure. We also think maybe it was a nod to a jersey of a favorite player, but there's no confirmation. It's all speculation. And you're the first person that I've talked to that was actually in the frame and in the scene. So this is kind of a very meta experience right. for me. Do, sure, do you have sure. any idea or thoughts on whose hand is grabbing Chrissy? You're talking to him across the, the counter, and when he reaches is yeah. to make your, your sandwich or your ghost's sandwich, a hand grabs him. Was there any sense of whose hand that was or whose hand that is? No, um, that particular scene and an episode, I think because, you know, at that, at that point, it really was a show and a series. It was, everything was kind of like uh, outlined out really quick. So no, there really, for me, there was no uh, back, there was no... Um, Context. Preparation, context of what everything was. It was just like, step into place. This is what you're doing. Put them in the body bag. Do your lines. Um, so, you know, not to like discredit the work there, but, you know, sometimes these things become a little bit more like uh, an assembly line or a factory in terms of like the shots. Like, like step in, we're doing this shot now. The, uh, the bullet slugs on the table. So, you know, I, I would say... You know, I, I've, I've worked on a couple of things as part of the uh, creative team, uh, writers, producers, and I would say that they are probably more likely to have those discussions about all of the details. For the most part, as an actor, you know, you kind of, you know, last one in. Uh, and so you're just kind of given your marks. Here's what to do. Here are your lines. I mean, uh, on occasion, you know, if you're lucky enough to spend time on a project, you know, I'm sure the the series regulars who are there, you know, were probably involved maybe in more of those creative discussions, but uh, probably the inner circle of, of writers and and, uh, and David and, and the producers had those discussions. But in terms of who's on that was, no, no, I, I wasn't aware of, of who that was, uh, but it was, I mean, shot beautifully, uh, visually, yeah, the, the visuals uh, in that scene, um, you know, a lot of people deserve the credit there. You know, when you think of like the art direction, uh, the cinematography, the writing, I mean, you're talking almost a dozen people. Like, you, you know, then it's like, whoa, David Chase's baby now became... 12 other people are now responsible for that baby. Yeah, I particularly am obsessed with that dream sequence in the opening of that episode, and we devoted about 20 mm -hmm. minutes just to talking about the dream sequence and the color, yeah. the color palette, the art history references. You know, your character says you start with one thing uh, in your sandwich, and then you switch to Black Forest ham, and right. uh, that was to me and to, to the guys that I'm doing this with a nod to Pine Barrens, which is a later episode, but we don't know necessarily that that was even a full 
fully formed idea yet, but it just, it, it was right. an Easter egg that we just keep going over and over again. And then um, Adriana morphing into Carmela and the connection between the two of them. It's a very loaded dream sequence. And it's also the first yeah. significant dream sequence that kind of gives you a hint that this show is going to utilize that illusion and reference throughout the series because the dream sequence became the most polarizing thing about the show. Some people loved them and some people just could not watch those episodes. I'm interested in how someone in your shoes views the show itself now. And if you can't talk about it from the point of the time that you were there, that's fine. Because again, like you said, it was everything was very factory and quick and instantaneous. But looking back, was it work? Was it more than that? I'm just trying to get a sense of the gravity of it. Because as you know, now you were a part of something that is considered by many to be the greatest thing on TV of all time, uh, something that transcended television, something that has to this day in 2018 hundreds of thousands of fans on Facebook, on Instagram, people that are championing it, you know, in terms of the prequel that's coming out, uh, The Many Saints of Newark, the movie. It's its own religion. I mean, I'm just going to call it that. Um, Did you have any sense of that then? And if not, obviously now, what's your reaction to what I just said? I, I think it's great. I mean, it, it's it's fascinating to me as it is to you as well. Like, you know, I'll be honest, I did not watch every episode. I, I got interested in the show. The funny thing is, it's kind of like an odd little fact, but uh, I guess not that unusual. I didn't have a TV for years, a television. I still call it a TV, but I didn't have a television or cable for years. So when the show was running, you know, I, I would just hear about it. And my father was a big fan of it. And uh, friends and family were, were nuts for the show. But I came to it maybe like three, four years in, I started trying to catch up and watch episodes. Um, I was like, preoccupied with other stuff and dealing with life and, and other, other things. But since the show has been on the air, you know, I've had probably a dozen people reach out to me. Um, you know, someone sent me a, a letter asking, you know, sent me some photographs. They asked me to sign them, you know, from like, you know, Missoula or Indiana. You know, I'll get like people reaching out to me from all over the country. Uh, I'm, I'm blown away by that, you know. You know, as an actor or a writer, creator, you know, you do these things and, um, you know, it's great while you're doing them, but people forget about them and, you know, and then there's another gig. But this this particular show and what you're talking about, the whole um, sort of community and that's evolved around it, it's great. It's fun. I get a kick out of it. You know, I, I was literally there for... Two days I worked uh, on that show, one day on the pilot and one day on the uh, eighth episode. So, you know, my involvement was very, very small. You know, in in total, I was probably there like, I don't know, maybe 20 hours. Maybe I worked 10 hours each day. And a lot of that was sitting around, you know, eating bagels. (laughs) (laughs) And I do remember this, though. I remember getting a kick out of this. So I was... um, when, when they had me back, um, you know, uh, I remember I got there the day of and they, they had like a little holding area. And I was in this room with Drea DeMatteo, who who I didn't know. I, you know, I just knew her. She was just some another, you know, actress that I was working with. And she was very, very nice. She was very excited. And her and I were sitting in this like 
just this like nondescript room. It, it almost looked like, you know, like a, like an office or in a, in a trailer. And we were just like waiting, you know, waiting to go on and do our, our scenes. And she was on the phone. I'm not even sure she might've had a cell phone or it might've been a landline or something. And I, I was sitting, I was earshot, you know, she, she was on the phone, I think with someone in our family. And she was like, she's like, I got the part, you know, I got it. Like, they're going to have me back. She was like, she was like jumping for joy. And, you know, I remember sitting there thinking, Oh wow, that that's awesome. Like somebody informed her that they were going to make her regular. Uh, while she was there shooting her scene, I guess it, it hadn't been decided. And she was just ecstatic, and I was happy for her. But, you know, there was that part of me that was like, oh, shit, I'm dead. Like, <laughs> good for her. She's <laughs> she's going to go on and make a million dollars, and, uh, you know, I got to go out after this and figure out how I'm going to, like, you know, get a pot to piss in. You know? <laughs> but, no, it, it was great. I, I, I never forgot that, you know, just seeing somebody so excited and, and thrilled is, like, you know, it, it, it's memorable because she was just, like, she was practically in tears, you know, that kind of excitement. That's special. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. This has been a delight for me. Um, might not be a big deal. I know this is something that was way back in your past. And like you said, you feel like you played a very small role in it. But to me, you played a big role and um, you helped the arc of the story. And um, you were part of the greatest, in my opinion, the greatest television pilot of all time. So that's a lot to hang your hat on. Wow. Before I let you go, what are you doing these days? And are there any upcoming projects or causes or anything that you'd like to mention before we say goodbye? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I am uh, directing and, and writing uh, myself uh, right now, and I've uh, been for a few years. I've been making some films, uh, a short independent film, and I'm embarking on a, uh, a feature film that is written and directed with my wife. Um, it's called Churros. And, and I work for an amazing not-for-profit institution called uh, BAM, also known as the Brooklyn Academy of Music. Uh, so very involved in um, bringing attention to uh, underserved communities that need art programs and uh, youth programs uh, in the in the city of New York. That is that's my day job and uh, a job that I'm very excited about. And uh, so yes, when I'm not doing that, uh, I'm writing a script and uh, trying to get it made. So uh, you know, I'm in the same same shoes as David Chase was early on, and and hoping to uh, get a get a project produced. Yeah. Amazing. I wish you the best of luck on that, yeah. and I wish you much success. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, Rick, Rick, thank you so much for reaching out anytime. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure. Happy to, happy to be a part of this. Thank you. 